Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Podbean podcasts and YouTube channel, Gaudium at Spez22.com uh, interviews. This is part two of my interview with the uh, one and only Gavin Ashenden, convert from Anglicanism. Most of you know his story. Anglican bishop became a convert. What year was it, Gavin? 2017, 2019, I believe. Well, it was, it was 2019, but it had been cooking an awfully long time. Yes, yes. And we discussed it in the last in the last video. So we're not going to, to do that again. But I had so many I, I got easily a couple hundred emails from people saying, oh, ha wow. do have him on again, do have him on again. Uh, so many. So uh, my apologies to everybody out there who I could not email back since there were so many. But uh, thank you. Thank you for those messages. And so, Gavin, welcome back. Very much. <laughs> okay, I I do want to start with uh, uh, a correction to something, and it leads into something else here. I I did an inter interview. I, I and if I start coughing, it's okay. I've been a little sick, and we were actually supposed to do this interview on on Saturday, and I had to cancel. But anyway, uh, I, I think I'm okay. Anyway, I did an interview with Bishop James Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, on liturgy, and in the midst of that uh, conversation, I said I made a mistake with regard to the Anglican Ordinariate liturgy that I attend, and I said that the penitential rite in the Anglican liturgy, ordinary liturgy, does not happen until right before a reception of the Eucharist. And uh, that is a mistake. The actual penitential rite happens just before the offertory and right after the intercessions and the prayer, this prayer that's simply called the penitential rite. It is a beautiful penitential prayer. Uh, one I wish that we could all, uh, I would encourage people to look it up. But the, the, the prayer that I mentioned was the prayer of humble access, which happens right before the reception of the Eucharist, which also has a strong penitential element to it. And then after reception uh, of the Eucharist, communion, there's a prayer of thanksgiving, which has a certain penitential element to it. Uh, and I just find all three of those prayers to be stunningly beautiful prayers, uh, in, in the Anglican ordinary liturgy that I wish we could find some way to incorporate into them. So anyway, I thought that I would use that correction as a segue to all. Uh, uh, oh, and I have a, then I have a question for Gavin. First, the question is, what does he think of the ordinary liturgy in general? We touched upon this last time. But also I have a specific question. I had an ordinariate member write to me who lives in the UK. I'm not certain where I'd have to go back and look. Uh, in the UK, and they said that is the uh, they asked the question: Is the ordinary liturgy different in the United States than in the UK? Because here in the UK, all of the ordinary masses that I go to are are very very similar to the Novus Ordo Mass of of the Catholic Church. That that and so it reminded me. I had a conversation once with uh, some ordinary priests here in the United States who told me that one of the biggest frustrations with in the ordinary right now in the UK is getting ordinariate priests to use the new ordinariate liturgy and to not simply use the Novus Ordo. So those are my two questions for Gavin. First, what do you think of the ordinariate liturgy in general? And number two is to the extent that you've been exposed to the ordinariate in the UK, is that, is that uh, recognition true that it's, it's, it's not that prevalent to the ordinary liturgy? Uh, so I can answer the second question, first of all, and say that I, I don't have sufficient exposure to know the answer. Um, uh, but but I have read, yes, that there are slight differences uh, between the ordinariats in Australia, America and in the UK. Uh, and there were views on both sides as to whether that should or shouldn't happen. Um, I'm not a fay with the I don't have enough information to answer that question. However, 
um, I, I, let, let me start with something anecdotal and say one of the reasons. So I, I was in, I was waiting for uh, my uh, my my Catholic, my local diocese to progress my papers for ordination. And um, forgive me if I said this before, but I'll leap onto the bit that I hadn't said. No. Uh, and that they had they had they'd not they'd not been sent. Um, they they'd fallen behind a, a metaphorical filing cabinet. But the the moment came when <laughs> I was offering the um, the office online as I do the office of the hours and I was saying to the Lord that the, these Hebrew translations and we talked about this are, are awful and I, I'm really you know if you give me another 15 years of uh, of offering uh, liturgical praise on earth please can it not be with these dreadful translations because they're they're, they're just they lose the you know they've lost every, they've lost the poetry they've lost the beauty they've lost the accuracy they're it's really not a very they're really not very good but the uh, ordinate, but the the Anglican translations were very good, so the Hebrew was not as well advanced uh, in the 16th century as it is now. But nonetheless, the beauty, above all, the beauty of of and the cadence of the Psalms uh, were overwhelmingly lovely. It's one of the great things about Anglicanism, and particularly about the Cranmerian prayer book. Uh, I think Coverdale was the version that was was the translation that forms a basis of it. So I said to the Lord, you know, maybe maybe I could join the ordinariat uh, and be ordained in the ordinariat. And then I could not only go on offering these psalms, which I know by heart and they're very beautiful, but I could also have access to the rest of the Eucharistic liturgy. Because as you, as you say, Cranmer's poetic gift for penitential prayers mm -hmm. is is uh, is utterly wonderful. And um, it's it's... It's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I'm going back rereading everything I ever learned <laughs> historically at the moment. So I have to go back and reread Cranmer to understand quite what he was doing. From an Anglican point of view, just, just to give listeners a, a, a sense of the perspective if they don't have it already, Cranmer's always sold to Anglicans as being a man of great inclusivity, a, a generous, warm-hearted uh, a man who, who, if there were both sides of the coin and they could be written in, uh, then, then, then he would do it. And uh, we have so much to be grateful for in the way in which he incorporated both insights, biblical insights of reformed pers personal responsibility, and yet retaining some form of juice through the umbilical cord with the Mother Church. That's how Anglicans understand their position and with Cranmer. Um, so, so let me let me be dramatic for a moment and and say how I fell out of love with Cranmer uh, at a fairly critical moment that precipitated my conversation. So, as as a parish priest, I I'd experienced a certain amount of domestic abuse. People would come to me and talk about domestic abuse and how difficult it was. And of course, there is a pattern by which you both punish somebody and you praise them. It's the way in which you demolish them and then seduce them to stay within the the rhythm of punishment and. Uh, I was uh, I was uh, helping a very elderly priest friend of mine. I'd left the Church of England, but I, I'd, re I'd remained an Anglican through the Christian Episcopal Church in the United States, for whom I had Episcopal responsibility as a missionary bishop. So I, I was banned from um, Anglican churches in any formal role by, by the bishops here who didn't like my change and were not very generous about it. But my, my local my local lovely elderly parish priest who was about 80 said you know would you can you, i'm sure you can they can't stop you reading the lesson and accompanying me with with um the distribution of communion so he would have me read the lessons occasionally and that was very kind 
It was during the distribution of communion that I heard domestic abuse in the Cranmerian words because uh, within the prayer book that, that we have, it says over the host, the body of Christ given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life, which is, any Catholic can say. It's, it's unambiguous and it's really quite wonderful. And for those who have sacramental uh, Catholic nostalgia within Anglo-Catholicism, it works perfectly well. But the next line, which you have to say to the person next is, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and be thankful, which is basically, um, you know. Hmm. We seem to have frozen up. Gavin seems to have frozen here on us. Um, well, we're waiting for Gavin to come back. I will just read. Really, this okay. means... Do we freeze? Sorry. Yeah, I'll, just I'll... briefly. That's okay. Go ahead. You're back okay. now. And this seemed to me to be not a matter of being complimentary, but actually of of, of using manipulative contradiction. You cannot, you cannot, you know, because I remember, you, you know, if, if you're receiving communion, you say to yourself, I do hope, hope I get the right words. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I hope I get the Catholic words, not the Zwinglian words. But essentially, every, you know, the first person A gets, gets, the possibility of interpreting it as the mass person b gets zwingli a mass b zwingli what is this this is not complementarity this is schizophrenia and it's a kind of form of schizophrenia that that i thought was most akin to domestic abuse and i suddenly thought i've had cranmer wrong all this time this is this is not a position of complementary integrity uh, this is a form of po political crowd control and psychological manipulation and i'm not i'm not having it anymore so of course all <laughs> all all that is um is is changed in the ordinary at liturgy as the reforms Zwinglian and protestant bits are ironed out um but i think what it does is it it's an indication of the fact that cranmer was immensely complicated person who happened to have the most wonderful poetic gifts which he put to the use of the church. And the ordinarity is immensely blessed because, you know, it's, it's, over, it's probably over-egging it to say the best, the best uh, uh, instrumentalist of the English language after Shakespeare is, is, is Cranmer. But you could make a case for that, um, liturgically, certainly, um, is, is offering himself in the service of the church. And as you rightly say, the, he gets the penitential prayers exactly right and 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 they're not exactly right in the catholic liturgy they uh they as we discussed last time yeah uh, they they are a bit clumsy both poetically well essentially poetically but there is a there's a cadence there is a cadence and, and a spiritual precision in cranmer's uh prayers that are really utterly wonderful and the ordinary is very blessed to have access to them yeah, and I know sometimes I get emails from people too saying, "Stop talking about the ordinary liturgy. There isn't one within five hundred miles of me." So now all you've done is you, you've made me wish I had one near me, uh, and and there isn't. So well, I I can't help that. Uh, and the only reason I keep bringing it up is because I am so deeply interested in liturgy, uh, and I believe strongly in the reform of the reform of the Novus Ordo liturgy within the church. And I know there are a lot of Catholic opinions on the liturgy these days, but I am of the opinion that the ordinary liturgy, if we're going to have mass in the, in the vernacular with dialogical responses from the congregation and prayers mm -hmm. prayed out loud and so on, 
I, I think the ordinary liturgy gives us, at least for the Anglo world, a tremendous template uh, for reforming uh, the reform of the liturgy. Whether or not that happens, I do not know, but but I certainly like it. Now, let, let's uh, so that then is a segue into a topic that I did say to you beforehand that I wanted to talk about. Uh, just I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before time runs in my head uh, altogether these days as I age. I don't know why, but I think it was last week. There was a big ecumenical meeting at the Vatican where Pope Francis invited uh, the Anglican churches, including Welby, to come and do Anglican ceremonies in Catholic basilicas in Rome, uh, Anglican Eucharist, Anglican Vespers. And then there was a big meeting of of uh, Bishop Welby and the Pope, and uh, they mutually blessed each other and so forth. What did what did you well, of course that then sent a lot of very, very conservative Catholics really, you know, to their to their keyboards, condemning all of this as an atrocious one, one more horrible thing that Pope Francis has done. I have to admit it left me a bit nonplussed and a little uncomfortable, especially when they started talking about the need for a pluralism of rights within the church, even as they're suppressing the, the Latin mass in the church. And so anyway, what did, what do you, what did you think of that? I oh, Gavin has frozen up again. Uh, this did not happen in our, in our last interview. But in the latest Sorry, we've frozen again. You either have integrity or you don't. The rhetoric uh, of criticism against traditionalists was wholly misplaced. I mean, for example, um, the Vatican has just re released some documents uh, commenting on the validity of, of, of the sacraments, and it's taking a very hard line. And it's Justice verbiscu, yeah. Right, absolutely. And, and it's basically saying if you get it right, it's right. If you get it at all wrong, it's all wrong. So, le so let's take that as a model and apply it to the ecumenical adventure. Uh, and, and the fact is, <clears throat> it's all wrong, because um, the foundational self-understanding of both churches doesn't allow what the Pope did and the Archbishop did to happen. Why doesn't it allow it? Perhaps I can just offer a bit of historical context. Go ahead. Uh, after all, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those traditional Catholics who flew to the keyboard. Um, and I resent being I resent it being suggested that this is some form of peak or discomfort that I'm not entitled to a form of emotional aberration that a grown up person right. wouldn't have. This is a level of uh, this. This involves a degree of uh, character assassination that is wholly misplaced. We that's are why I brought it up, by the way. And I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you. But that's <laughs> why I brought it up, because I, too, complained. And yet this is the constant accusation against me as well. Oh, you're just being emotional. This is just you being hateful. That's not it at all. Anyway, so I'm sorry I interrupted, but go ahead. So my view, my view of the Anglican Church has always been that that it that it involves a certain amount of pantomime play acting because, but it's you know it's not unreasonable because it inherited the cathedrals and the parish and the, it inherited Catholic architecture, so it's not unreasonable that people with some degree of aesthetic sensibility might at one. Point... Okay, Gavin keeps freezing on us. I don't know why. Um. So my apologies to to the listeners. I hope that he comes back and can continue on. But for those and void. Okay, so, we so... froze again. So repeat what you just. I don't know why we keep freezing. I've never had um, this problem before. But go ahead. Well, it may it may be the where I placed Elon Musk's um, uh, transponder, and it's being 
it, it's being obstructed. I'm sorry if it's my end. Um, and so the the uh, the situation is that Anglicans have Catholic architecture. Through the Oxford movement, they began to develop, they began to recover Catholic clothing. Aesthetically, that's absolutely lovely. When they asked the questions about whether their play acting was authentic, they were told it wasn't authentic because of the changes to the liturgy they deliberately engineered um, to get rid of the sacrifice of the mass. So their ordinations were not of, of priests offering the, the holy sacrifice. Well, right. you know, but that's no great surprise because that's what the liturgy says. <laughs> so their, their, their Catholic aspirations were a triumph of wishful thinking over liturgical reality. Well, you know, guys, get with it, grow up. Uh, so, so then in the 1960s, um, as it happened, we had a wonderfully, uh, a wonderfully dramatic archbishop called Michael Ramsey, who looked oh, yeah. like a bishop, spoke like a bishop, appeared to be a bishop. It's just that according to the Pope, he wasn't a bishop. But nonetheless, he carried it off really well. And just at that moment, there came the possibility of some kind of rapprochement with Rome partly because the Anglicans looked more Catholic than they'd ever looked under the archiepiscopal ministry of this rather splendid man. But they had a choice to make. Um, feminism had ar arisen, and feminism was making demands uh, on the Anglican church, and it had to decide between whether or not it pursued the zeitgeist in order to gain more credibility with people who were not very Christian anyway, but nonetheless for whom it had a state responsibility the argument's perfectly reasonable. It, I don't agree with it, but it's a reasonable argument. Or whether it pursued a unique opportunity for rapprochement with the Mother Church. It was a matter of immense seriousness. A great deal hung on it. The Church of England chose to go for feminism. Yes. Yes, it which... did. All right. We have a Starlink Elon Musk issue again on, on Gavin's end. And uh, hopefully, as, soon as I see, is... as soon as I see your eyes flicker, I'll go back to where I was. So, yeah. so Archic, which is the Anglican Roman Catholic Commission, uh, had made some very, very interesting prospective advances. And at that point, the moment that the Anglican Church seriously embarked upon the ordination of women, uh, it broke Archic. Now, the interesting thing was, at this at this point, I I became a grown up and an ordained clergyman. Um, and the thing that surprised me was that there was no theological discussion at all. I can tell you that from the moment I entered Anglican Seminary in 1977 to the moment when the women priests went, vote went through in the early 90s, I never heard a theological argument ever, not once. I tried to make some as I as I read uh, some Catholic theologians was a man called Eric Maskell, and one of the things that Maskell did was to quote a couple of in one of his books was to couple of, quote a couple of French theologians who had made some exploration into the theological implications of sexuality, but there wasn't a lot of that stuff around, and it was never articulated. It was a political debate only. But when it came to ordaining women, once again, we were told this was experimental. It was an act of discernment. If it didn't work, it would be given up on. Well, of course, that was a lie. There was never an intention of that. However, upon that lie, though, that we then progressed to the ordination of women to the to the episcopate. Um, I bought the lie, but I knew perfectly well that the moment the Anglican Church consecrated women in the feet of the in the in the footsteps of the apostles, uh, the lie was exposed for what it was, and that was the point at which I resigned my orders formally. Um, now, um, 
the implications of the Anglican position, therefore, were understood in the early 70s. It chose feminism. It ended up by treating men and women as if they were theologically and sacramentally equivalent, which is a very anti-Catholic position. Um, having done that, there is no platform upon which it can present itself to Rome and say, you must recognise our orders. It's it's a nonsense at every point. In fact, actually, it's the Anglican Church has been rather rude to, to the Roman position. Now, for, for, for Welby then to turn up to in, the, in the week of prayer for Christian unity, begging the issue of what unity might mean, uh, as a Catholic, the unity with Anglicanisms means that Anglicanisms repent of their schism and rejoin the church that they left on improper grounds, having started a 500-year-old exp ecumenical experiment that has failed. That's ecumenism. For them to present themselves in Rome and say, by the way, we'd like to give the impression that, uh, that, that we are bringing bishops. And whilst we're doing that, we will also bring a couple of women bishops, just so you, you know we're not going to compromise or exercise any taste or, or, or be grateful for the hospitality you've given us. And instead, struck me as being, being, being rude, illusory, deceptive, and without any integrity. I mean, at, at, at no level do I see any integrity in this process. Uh, why Pope Francis should have decided to indulge this level of, of, I want to say gross. I don't want to, to pitch it too hard, but, 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 but serious, profound deception. I don't know, <laughs> but he did. On the other hand, he, he, Pope Francis does seem to me to have the mindset of an Episcopalian, of an Anglican. You can't put much difference between him and Welby, particularly on sexuality. Um, so uh, these two church leaders, one of whom is uh, a bishop and a pope and the other whom is an arch layman, uh, offered a presentation to the world uh, that was wholly illusory. And I think anyone who cares about the truth and having conversations based upon reality and, and integrity and some form of, of, of theological clarity ought to be upset by that. Well, if you're not upset by it, what would upset you? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think your point is well taken that uh, the, 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 the liturgical garb that is donned by Anglican priests and bishops and the architecture of the churches, which is all borrowed from the Catholic church and the Catholic patrimony can easily fool one through its pantomiming of Catholicism into thinking, well, look, they, they sound like us. They look like us in their use of incense. They even smell like us. All right. And therefore, if, you know, if it barks like a dog walks like a dog, it's a dog, but that's just not true. I mean, the official position of the Catholic Church remains to this day, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think is that Anglican orders are, in the language of the time, utterly null and void. And yeah, and, yeah yes. <laughs> and, and that's the point you're making. And the adjudication that was made by the church in, in the 19th century in that regard was based exactly on the reasons that you state, which is that, there are, that the Anglicans themselves have abandoned the notion of the mass as a sacrifice. It's right in there. And therefore, we simply we cannot accept the validity of their ordinations and so forth. Now, Pope can Francis says, no, go ahead. Go right you, ahead. Well, I'd, I'd like to offer a couple of anecdotes, because sometimes, especially if you've been ranting, telling a story um, reduces, you know, it makes people feel slightly more comfortable. But the, the anecdotes are, are, are to the point, I think. So I just like to tell a story about how I began my own theological thinking. I'd, I'd gone out as a, I'd been ordained a year or so to Canada, and I met my first woman priest. So, so there were well, I say priest, but I mean I should say either priestess or or let's let's call her an Anglican minister. 
and she was celebrating the Anglican Eucharist. And I thought to myself, well, this will be very interesting because all the way through my seminary training, nobody uh, nobody was able even to agree on terms. There wasn't. There is no agreement within Anglicanism on what a priest or a minister is. That there's no definition. I mean, people would be astonished at that, but there isn't one. Uh, and indeed, evangelicals who've been in the ascendancy for about 100 years get very, very cross when the word is used because they think it's a piece of liturgical deception. And from their point of view, they're quite right. It is. It's Once more, it's it's a pantomime borrowing of Catholic garb in an unjustified way. And you have to, you know, whatever you think of evangelical Anglicans, they're really quite committed to them, to the truth. They don't like being deceived. So uh, we're in Canada and this woman began to liturgy and I thought she's doing it quite well. I didn't see what the fuss is about. She was dressed like a priest. She uh, she, 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 she ran the liturgy quite well. She read okay. She preached a reasonable homily. And I began to sit back and think, I don't think, I don't know what the fuss was about. All these guys who were getting themselves so exercised, you know, seems to be going okay to me. Then she stood behind the altar. And at that point, my stomach flipped involuntarily. And, and I then had a conversation between my head and my stomach. And my head said to my stomach, hey, you down there, what's wrong with you? Why are you so upset? Because it was visceral. It wasn't just indigestion or anything. It was like, uh, I'm going to be sick. Um, I'm ill. Uh, and and my st the, the point about the stomach or the, the unconscious is it's not rational. It can't talk back. So so my, 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 my rational faculties said, what's the matter? And all it got back was great distress. And so, so my rational faculty said, well, I can see you're very distressed. You're, you are either, therefore, sexist and phobic, not that we use those languages much, but do I have a, do I have a, a sexist stomach? Or, is my, or, or are my bowels, my splankna, telling me something that my head is actually at the moment incapable of understanding? So I decided that, that you know, here we have two hypotheses. Let's see which of them turns out to be true. And that was when I began a theological examination of the notion of priesthood, what issues there might be engaged, attached to uh, sexuality, the sacraments, uh, and, and the human person. Uh, and I began to move towards the Catholic position and become increasingly mistrustful of the politicized secular arguments that were being given. Um, so, so, that, that was, so that was the first thing. But just to give people a sense of what actually happens on the ground in Anglicanism, I went to uh, I went to an evangelical seminary, and uh, I was in charge of the music. So I would teach my 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 peers settings to the Eucharist, uh, and you know we'd have traditional ones, and we'd have. I remember at one point I taught them a, a, a very jolly American charismatic one set by a woman called Betty Pulkingham. You may never have heard of her, but anyway, involving lots of guitars and tambourines and all that kind of excitement. But um, at the end of one particular one, the principal came up to me and said, uh, we, um, we had just done the Lord's Prayer. And he said, thank you, Gavin. That was very interesting. Uh, I guess you'll be moving on to another setting next week. What's it going to be? And I said, no, David, we have, a, we have one more piece. It's rather pretty. It's the Agnes Day. It's actually rather beautiful. So I'll be doing that next week. No, he said, you won't. I said, I beg your pardon. I, I will. It's, it's there, David. It's the next bit. And it's, it's quite nice musically. He said, no, you won't be doing it. And I said, okay, we, we don't understand each other. Um, it is there. It's aesthetically quite good. You're telling me I won't be doing it. Could you please explain something? Because I'm obviously missing it. And then he bent over conspiratorially as if we were talking about pornography or self-abuse or something. And he said, <laughs> he said, I mean, the, the whole body, he said, we don't, we don't use that, that prayer, that liturgy in this college. And I said, but but I thought we had to use the liturgy that General Synod 
set down by law. Everyone makes a great deal of the fact it's not just church law, it's parliamentary law. I didn't know you had the authority to change the liturgy here. This is news to me. He said, we don't have that prayer. And I said, okay, David, why not? He said, well, because some of the brethren might be misled into thinking there is some, some connection, any connection at all between the bread and our dear Lord Jesus Christ. I said, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I, I came here on the understanding that there was some form of connection between the Holy Eucharist <laughs> and our Lord. Um, and, and, uh, so I said, I, I mean, I was, well, I was 24, I think. I tried not to be rude. But I said, look, Dave, can we have a compromise? Would you let me teach them the music? Because they're going to encounter it when they go outside. And then since you teach liturgical studies, you, you can hit this theological canar on the head once and for all and convince everyone why there is, you know, if you're Zwinglian, theological position which i understand you hold and you know that's absolutely fine so i mean you can make sure this dreadful thing does not happen by by the by the power and force of your theological arguments in the lectures and leave me to finish the music whereupon he simply stood up and said this matter is at an end we're not discussing any further now the reason i tell you that story and i promise you i have not exaggerated is it's kind of burnt into my soul <laughs> <laughs> well it's because that's how strongly a large proportion of the Church of England repudiate any notion beyond Zwinglianism, let alone Lutheranism, right? let alone the ambiguity of, 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 of Cranmer. Uh, and so one of the things that happens in, in Anglican liturgy is there's a, there are terrible trade-offs between the Anglo-Catholic movement and the, uh, and, and the evangelical movement, which has for 100 years been stronger. So it, 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 one... One's not just being fastidious and pedantic about the apostolic curiae. We're also representing the people that Welby is supposed to have archiepiscopal care of, most of whom totally repudiate the Catholic understanding of the Mass, and, and many of whom are profoundly uncomfortable with a Lutheran understanding of communion. That's how far away they are. Now, for an archbishop to, to be so detached from the reality of the, if you like, of the of the flock, flock's a bad word, isn't it? But of of, of the um, multivariable community that he represents is, well, it's either incompetence or it's deceptive. So it's not incompetence, it's deceptive. He's he's presenting as as so many of the senior clergy do, because because frankly, they'd like to think of themselves as having Catholic integrity and authority, but they don't want to pay the price. The, the price is the recognition of authority and obedience and a repudiation of the state Protestant propaganda that has uh, done everything to Catholics from, from burning them and hanging, drawing and quartering them to keeping them out of the universities and the professions for everything but the last 150 years. You know, that that that, that requires some level of apology. <laughs> you don't just get to play it, to, 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 to pantomime and pretend as if none of this ever happened. It's really all too serious. And, and once again, if I just finish, I'll finish right. my story. One of the things that, that, that brought this home to me once was uh, I, when I went to London, I used to go and say my prayers in Westminster Cathedral because there is no sense of the presence of God in Westminster Abbey. It's very beautiful. It's very ornate. It's very old. But you walk in there and it feels like a museum. Uh, and the same thing is true of St. Paul's, St. Paul's on the other side of the river. They, uh, so it's the same, they're both on the same side of the river. One is east and one is west. Um, they're... they're, they're they're vacuous atmospheres. But when you go into Westminster Cathedral, the Catholic Cathedral in London, it's thick with the presence of God. So if you want somewhere to pray, then then and you have any antennae yeah. left, you, you go there. 
And they don't charge you to go in. They don't charge you to go in. They just ask you to say your prayers. Absolutely right, they don't. I went in and I stumbled over the body of a martyr um, uh, at the the West End in his coffin. And and I read about him and I went and looked him up. And I found myself profoundly moved because, again, the Anglicans know very much about the lives of the Catholics who gave themselves and suffered a tort torture and execution in order to provide the mass to the English people. This is not a game of any kind. It's a matter of life and death. They treated it as life and death and they made a huge sacrifice. And when you read their lives and you see the price that they paid, once more, you cannot have any patience with a pantomime that somehow pretends that this never happened. It has to be faced. It's, it's It's a bit like, you know, what would you think of a Jew who who just said, well, let's pretend the Holocaust never happened. Let, let's pretend that people didn't do that to us and that I, hasn't affected the way the community is. So if I seem a little energized, it's because uh, one very impatient with the play acting that Anglicanism uh, yeah. involved, the, the lack of integrity, the lack of truth, the lack of reality. And when I became more sensible of of, of the truth of the Catholic faith, there is a great sense of the price that people have paid for it. And I'm not going to be part of any charade that diminishes that price. I appreciate that. I mean, I mentioned in our last broadcast, you know, I'm a Benedictine oblate and I took as my Benedictine patron saint when I signed up to be an oblate, uh, Father uh, yeah, Father John Robert, who was uh, a Benedictine English who fled Henry, went to France, then went back to say mass clandestinely, was caught and then martyred but anyway I, one of the things that when you were speaking it yeah i i remember uh i guess the year was about 1998 or 2000 i i went to oxford university for a science i've written a book on science and religion and so i was at this templeton foundation sponsored science and religion conference at saint anne's college oxford i love oxford uh, it's gone downhill in my view as it's gotten corporatized and so forth some of the quaint places uh, but nevertheless, I, I loved it. And I did, of course, the tour. And I remember I went in, I, th- I believe it was Maudlin College, could have been one of the other colleges, one of the older colleges. Yeah. And I went into the chapel and I sat in a, one of the wooden pews. And as I got up and I looked down at the side and carved into the side of the pew was the date. And I believe the date was 1325 or something like wow. that. Wow. And I remember thinking to myself, it really struck me. Oh, at this one time. Happened. This was yes. Catholic. Yes. At one time, well, the pew I am sitting in was here when this was all Catholic. As I'm looking around at all of the architecture around me, this was all Catholic. Uh, and the concept, and, the concept was Catholic. Both the architecture yes. and the idea, everything about it is Catholic. And uh, and so, the, well, you've made the point quite right. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it's 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 a profound point. Yeah, and, and then it further struck me that Anglicanism is parasitical in many ways, yeah, living, living off of this Catholic patrimony, living yeah. off of its architecture, its liturgy, its vestments, uh, and, so, and yet at the same time whittling away at it and hollowing out from within. And then now coming into Rome in the Vatican with its female bishops and saying, please recognize us. With with a, and so that so we're, we've come full circle here back to to the beginning, which uh, the the question that pops into my head in all of this is: Does Pope Francis think Anglican orders are valid? Um, I I sometimes wonder about that. I don't know. Well, I, I, go I, ahead. I was 
Well, so so um, there's a there's a man called Archbishop Gregory Venables who was an Anglican Archbishop in South America, and um, Greg's a friend of mine, uh, and uh, he he knew uh, Cardinal Bergoglio when he was Cardinal Bergoglio. They they, they yeah. worked together in South America, um, and I mean, there's no there's there's no doubt at all. I, I there's no doubt at all that that Cardinal Bergoglio was. Um, was very generous to the Anglicans. And also there's, there was a, an Anglican continuing bishop I knew who was a young man in his 40s who died in a motorbike accident. And, and I don't know if you, if you haven't seen it, 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 it's a matter of historic interest. But again, he was quite close to Cardinal Bergoglio as a uh, as an Anglican, almost boy bishop missionary. And, uh, uh, and after Cardinal Bergoglio was made Pope, he went to see him in Rome and he organized a video meeting between the Pope and some pretty extreme, and I don't mean that critically, I'm, but on the spectrum, uh, Protestant Pentecostal uh, Americans, um, uh, the, 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 the jet set rich, um, give us yeah. $100 and we'll pray your healing people. Um, and uh, from, from, from with whom he had had close links, with whom the boy bishop had close links in, in South Africa. And at the moment, this, at the time, this seemed to me a moment of supreme excitement because I bought into the idea that the cardinal was a man of, uh, of, of wide affection and, and a capacity for recognizing spiritual authenticity wherever he saw it. And perhaps part of the ecumenical uh, challenge is marrying what the Holy Spirit has done because the Holy Spirit is so generous uh, to people outside the catholic church he, he doesn't penalize them for not being catholics on the other hand they don't have access to jesus in the mass which is a if you want jesus in, any, in every way you can get him matters a great deal so initially I, I i and i watched this conversation and and the pope francis handled it very well the protestant pastors were highly skeptical and and um uh but it, but it was very well done and i thought this was the beginning of a miraculous ecumenical springtime with a very wise and kind pope and i thought i should be so lucky to live in the in, in this period of history then it turned out that pope francis was not who he appeared to be and in this sense perhaps he resembles anglicanism to some extent because if Pope Francis had turned out to be a man who was capable of being deeply moved by spiritual integrity and spiritual authenticity wherever he found it, then he would recognise it amongst the traditionalists uh, within the Catholic Church as easily as he could recognise it amongst the neo-Pentecostalists in South America and in, in North America. And that isn't the case. So it's very hard to know. I mean, I I, I, I can't... Is get it possible... Is it possible that he's just inconsistent? In other words, that maybe he does have a certain capacity for seeing spiritual riches in other traditions, but not within his own household. <laughs> I don't. I don't see how that works. You either you either recognize the authenticity of the of, of the holy presence of the presence of Jesus, or you don't. I don't see how you can recognize it in one context and not another. If what we're talking about is a spiritual charism, and right. if we're talking about sociological sensitivity, well, then, of course, some environments are going to be easier to read sociologically, intellectually than others. But I'm talking about a kind of I'm talking about a charism of the spirit, 
Um, I mean, one of the things that I really liked when I became an evangelical Anglican was I could recognize the spirit of Jesus in another human being. I would see eyes that that went deeper, um, eyes that that, that 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 were lit up. And I would say to myself, I think that's a born again Christian. And I would be right. Um, I wouldn't know anything about their, their, their ecclesial affiliation. But the, the beautiful thing about that level of discernment is you see the Holy Spirit at work in this across the spectrum with such generosity. Yes. I think with Pope Francis, there's an element of no enemies to the left of me working I think here. That, it's something like that. And also, and also, as I said, I, I had a 15-year period of Jungian heterodoxy. And, and almost all of the Pope's, I say, I think almost all of the Pope's reflexes I shared at the time. And they would have been uh, a, an anxiety about rigidity, about people... Um, about people putting faith in structure rather than in in the kind of fluidity of of existential experience i was very keen on the protection of the homosexual community uh, i i was very anxious that there should be nobody in hell and that god would be nice and 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 judgment wouldn't take place in that fashion and these i i, I occupied a heterodox mindset in which I found myself dancing the same theological dance as I see the Pope doing. So in that sense, I think he is a Jungian, heterodox Christian, uh, impatient and perhaps wounded by his own tradition, and perhaps, if one's going to be generous, unable to see through the pain of whatever wounds were inflicted on him. But whatever it is, it doesn't result in a consistent in a, in a consistent maturity of spiritual discernment. Uh, in, in, instead, it appears to be capable of becoming a vehicle for anger and revenge. Uh, if we think about Cardinal Muller and the people who have been sacked, it becomes capable of becoming a platform for projection of, of rage and disparagement, uh, as it does upon the whole of the traditional community. I mean, again, no one of any grown-up discernment ought to fall for that. After all, we don't even do that with Father James Martin. I mean, we say we think you're profoundly mistaken and we think your lifestyle is wrong. And we, we think you're preaching sin, but we don't demonize him. <laughs> Instead, yeah. we, 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 want, we want to dialogue with him in order to say, look, there's something, there's something amiss in your theological calculations. Um, you know, come back, all is forgiven. But there is no sense in which the traditionalists in the Catholic Church are given the same generosity. So, right. so something something else is going on, and it's you know it, it, it's beyond my pay grade to say what it is, but it's not pretty and it doesn't have integrity. Well, yes, I mean I've written about this on numerous occasions. This inconsistency. People say, you know, look at all the beautiful things that Pope Francis has written, and he has written many wonderful and beautiful things, but I look more at what he has done uh, than so much than what he has said and what he has done is to, in one sense, elevate, elevate those on the progressive left into, into positions of authority and power. And that tells you all you need to know about what it is that he favors. And then who has he removed from office? And what has he suppressed? And that is all the people more on the, on, you know, the Cardinal Burks, the Cardinal Sarahs, the Cardinal Mueller's, uh, and then the, the traditional Latin mass people. So when you look at what he's done, yeah, there, there certainly seems to be no ability to see the spirit at work in the more conservative elements of the church. And you've left out the really, the real, the, the killer, the killer thing, which is giving sanctuary 
to child molesters and and sexual yes deviants um, yes because it doesn't matter where you are on the theological spectrum or the ecclesial spectrum uh it almost doesn't matter where you are in terms of spiritual discernment um there is a response so let me say first of all i i spent a certain amount of my time when i was employed by the university and not the diocese in trying to help clergy <clears throat> who who'd fallen flat on their faces uh i i remember having conversations with fairly senior people in the church of england saying the, the bishop can't do pastoral care for people who've slept with the wrong people because ultimately he has to be a disciplinary he has to he has to guard the faith on behalf of the abused and um, on behalf of the standards we commit ourselves to so we're going to need somebody else to look after the errant clergy many of whom made mistakes i mean they weren't all bad people um there's a whole spectrum of culpability that we we don't need to pronounce on it's not our business but on the other hand you have you have two you have two sorts two two problems one is the truth and integrity of the institution and one is helping people who've fallen flat on their face and are penitent um and and i spent quite a long time trying to square that circle in anglicanism and on the whole dealing with people who really weren't interested in doing it although if anyone should have been should have had the flexibility of doing it should have been the anglican hierarchy of all people but there's no but there's no there's no recognition at all within the pope's uh, looking at the Pope's actions, um, that that what he that, that I, either people are seriously being restored after a period of penitence, or that the interests of those who have been abused are being remotely recognised and protected. And so, when you have nuns heckling the Pope in public, saying, "We have been sexually abused by your protégés, and 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 you are you are just oh. ignoring," you know, I mean, this is this is. This is immorality of a grand on a grand scale. There are few things we can we are in, we know enough about to say this is serious immorality. But I'm afraid the the careless, irresponsible protection of sexual miscreants within the church without any other issues being faced is a piece of most serious immorality. And it's one that Pope Francis is guilty of. It's just a fact. Now we we can find we can find other gradating um, issues. I mean, it it may be that when it comes to Rupnik, yeah. someone has heard his confession and and thinks he's as much sinned against as sinning. How would we know? We wouldn't know. But but there isn't even any attempt to say that the process is going on. Yeah, it, it is. It is not as if the Pope or, or the Pope's agents are saying, "Look, we know that we've given refuge to twenty-two dozen sexual miscreants, but we want you to know they're not having an easy time of it. We, we want you to know that they are being made to be accountable <clears throat> yeah. for what they did. That the food and lodging and hospitality we're offering them comes at a very high price, indeed. You know, and then people would say, "Okay, we'll trust you for that." But that's not what's happening. They're being promoted. They're being in offices. There appears to be no consequences at all. Well, that's quite close to being evil. Yeah, I mean, the, the what leaps to Father Rupnik, who's still a priest in good standing, uh, uh, still apparently visiting his art studio there in Rome all the time. Then there was the famous case of, of Bishop, Bishop Zanqueta from South America, who was credibly accused of all kinds of things. And and then instead of the Vatican coming down on him, the Vatican defended him and gave him a job in Rome, a cushy yes. Roman curial position of some kind, of, which which eludes me right now. 
before he was fine. And, and there are numerous other examples that, that one could could give. And now, normally, when I bring up this point with regard to Pope Francis, the Pope's defenders, knowing that I have a great love for St. Pope John Paul II, want to always remind me that Pope John Paul also seems to have turned a largely a blind eye to, to this issue. And the, the, I, I would defend John Paul to an extent. I mean, he, he dropped the ball here to, to, on two fronts. Number one, uh, the times were a bit different. Uh, you know, the, 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 the manner in which the church for decades and decades and decades had dealt with this issue had not really been outed and confronted and criticized and so forth. So there was still this sub Rosa approach to things during the papacy of John Paul uh, that he sort of inherited. Secondarily, he was from the communist bloc. And he did have a mentality of you don't air the church's dirty laundry in public because then the church's enemies will make serious use of that. He also was aware of the fact that the KGB routinely manufactured charges of priestly sexual abuse to bring down priests and bishops in the Catholic Church. So, so that's my partial defense of, 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 of John Paul in that regard. I think Benedict was better. But now me, we have it, it, we don't have we have hindsight now and and, and look at what's <laughs> going on. Go ahead. Well, so, so let's take that seriously and let's give John Paul II as hard a time as we give Pope Francis. That would only be fair. Is, is there any difference? And then, as you say rightly, yes, there are some differences. At the first difference is a level of communication and information. This was before before uh, the internet took on. Yes. Okay. We've, for the first time now, since the beginning of the interview, uh, he's frozen up again. So hopefully he'll Big come miss. back. Okay, okay go ahead. We're back again. Yeah, so, yes. so this was this was before the internet, and therefore. This was before the information became publicly available and the level of scandal and the level of public accountability was greatly diminished. I would be very surprised if the level of scandal, information and public accountability that exists today had existed with John Paul II, if he would have reacted in exactly the same way. I don't think he would have done because there was a sense of integrity and uh, that, that, that he exuded, and I, I simply can't believe it. So we have, if we take those variables into consideration, yes. then John Paul II made some very serious pastoral errors. And I'm very happy to say that. Yeah, uh, we, we should tell the truth where we see it. Uh, the Catholic Church is not perfect. One of the beautiful things about the Catholic Church is when it, when it goes wrong, the Holy Spirit puts it right again. So let us say that both he and Pope Benedict were behind the curve in terms of what they should have done. They were. Um, but that doesn't mean that as transparency becomes more evident and accountability becomes more pressing and scandal becomes more intense, that that allows Pope Francis to live by different or the same standards. It doesn't. It yeah. simply means that anybody holding responsibility in these circumstances has a, high, a far higher degree of responsibility. And, and the fact that that isn't being exercised is a profound and most serious problem. Oh, I, I agree completely. And uh, and I only bring up the John Paul thing to point out that Pope Francis is not the first pope to drop the ball in these matters so that to forestall all the emails, sure. I'm sure all the no, emails and comments that I'm going to get, you know, about how oh you turned a blind eye to John Paul and not to Francis. I think there is, are differences that we need to draw out here. And it is absolutely shocking 
that, that the Pope who published Vos Estes about even bringing bishops to justice who have done, turns a blind eye and even promotes those who are under a cloud of accusation and so on. Uh, he rehabilitated Cardinal McCarrick after the Vatican knew very, very well, you know, what McCarrick was, what McCarrick was up to. And I'll tell a little story. Uh, I used to there used to be an American television show on Fox News called The O'Reilly Factor, run by this guy, Bill O'Reilly. It was the number one rated cable news show in America at the time. I went on that show numerous times at the height of the priest sex scandal in the United States, 2002, on The O'Reilly Factor. Off camera one time, Bill O'Reilly asked me, is there a single prelate in the United States that we should be investigating that you know about? And I said, yes, Cardinal McCarrick. Mm. And that is because going back to the 1980s, when I was in the seminary, I knew men who were seminarians under McCarrick, who were it was already common knowledge. All right. So I said to, to, to Bill O'Reilly, yeah, McCarrick and O'Reilly just leaned back in his chair, smiled at me and said, yes, we've been looking into him, but we can't get anybody to go on the record. Uh, and, and, and this was the deal with McCarrick. So my point to, in bringing up that little anecdote is McCarrick was slippery. There's no doubt about it. He was slick and slippery and he used money to grease the wheels of justice uh, in his favor. But by the time you get to Pope Francis becoming Pope in 2013, McCarrick had already been disciplined somewhat with a slap on the wrist by the Vatican. The Vatican knew what was going on. And instead of just quietly sidelining McCarrick, Pope Francis rehabilitates him sends him to China, has him doing things for him until they this is go ahead. This is part. Sorry, this is partly about about what, you know, I mean, I again, I was involved in an Anglican situation where uh, I really screwed up. Um, we had a, a a bishop called Peter Bull. He was a monk, an Anglican Catholic bishop. He was my bishop for a while. I used to play squash with him. We get changed together and towel off together. And uh, uh, he had a he had a, a, a reputation of being a very holy man. And he was very, very gifted and skilled. And I once watched him give an after-dinner speech to an international conference of psychiatrists when I was his chaplain. I just thought, this guy's completely amazing. He's off the, he's off the wall good. However, <laughs> behind the scenes, he was abusing late teenage boys who came to spend a year in his monastery. And, and, it was, and nobody believed this. It was very hard. And, and it yeah. took me a very long time to believe it because his presenting charism was really so good. Now, I'm not sure that McCarrick has that presenting charism. It doesn't really matter very much. I'm, I'm really saying this, this that, that, that my, my willingness to accuse the Pope of serious flaws in this regard is not born of an attempt to want to be mean to Pope Francis. Um, uh, I've already said that I spent some of, a good deal of my pastoral time as an Anglican trying to rescue the very people who've committed sins in the way we talked about. And I discovered that I was very easily fooled, much more easily than I than I thought I could be by, by a particularly skilled uh, practitioner of abuse. But once you know, once you know beyond a reasonable doubt, once you have the evidence there, that's a very different situation. And I think the reason that people are so angry with the Vatican at the moment is everybody has the evidence. It's in the public space. And therefore... Yeah. The, the integrity of the church on everything else it says and does depends upon reacting in a responsible, a morally responsible way to the evidence. If you have a pope or even a hierarchy who knows the evidence and everyone knows they know the evidence and then they take no action and they pretend, 
this raises very serious questions about the moral probity of the whole church. It makes it much more difficult for me as a Catholic. How can I defend that? How, and the answer is I can't. So it, it's not just it's not just bad on its own merits. It's 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 really very serious at, at every level. And I think it's one of the greatest scandals of this pontificate and and indeed of this generation. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And and I. And I think that's that's unbelievably true. And I sometimes wonder if the hierarchy of the Catholic Church completely comprehends, even still, even to this day, completely comprehends the depth of the crisis that afflicts the Church on this issue and the extent to which they have no credibility in the public sphere to speak on anything, no credibility at all, until they deal with this issue, which they still really haven't done. Well, and if you'll excuse me for defending myself, the reason for speaking with as much uh, passion and clarity about this is not because I'm obsessed by it, but because I think I'm, I, I hope that what I'm doing is speaking with an intensity that the crisis in the church asks of us. And perhaps, you know, the, the more people who speak out with an intensity of, of conviction and discernment and perception, the, the more chance there is that this may percolate up to the point where those who are responsible take action and, and do something. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, you know, and, and you and I have gone through a similar process of discernment because we've spoken out, we're critical of Pope Francis and, and certain other people in the church. And so accusations come our way. Oh, you're just a Pope hater. Uh, you're sk- I, I got an email the other day. You are really, sk- you're skating on such thin ice in this criticism of the Pope. But no, yeah. the, the, the fact is the church really is in a crisis right now. There's a sense in which the church is always in some kind of a crisis, but it's it's a serious crisis that we're in now on a multiplicity of different levels. And one of the things that truly interests me in this regard is the extent to which the criticism is percolating up from below, from people like you and me, and for largely from lay people. Yeah. And, so, and so there's an element of a residual kind of clericalism in the church that says, Lowly lay people, even ones with theology degrees and so on, or experience working in the church, have no right to, to in a sense, offer such criticisms towards the hierarchy of the church. Uh, And under normal conditions, I mean, yeah, we need to have respect and so forth for the office of the church. But as we've said before, it's out of respect for the office of the church that we sort of offer these criticisms of certain persons who hold those offices. And, and so I think on. Canon law gives canon law gives us a platform for doing that in certain circumstances. Yes, and neither one of us is. Well, anyway, uh, that brings me then. I think. <laughs> yeah. That, that, so okay. So we, we're we've been almost an hour, but there there's along these lines, um, and I know I, I get emails to stop talking about fiducia supplicans so much. I'm sick and tired of hearing it, but it's it's an issue that continues. The reason why fiducia supplicans is important is because it says more than it says, and it means more than it means. In other words, it the significance of it goes well beyond whether or not a priest is going to offer a simple little blessing five seconds over over two dudes. Maybe he shouldn't be or whatever. It goes well beyond that. And, and I want I asked I said to you in an email before we went on or a message, you know, I want to talk about the recent comments of Pope Francis. I think he was even talking to members of the DDF. Uh, where he was defending fiducia supplicants, and he said, look, opposition to it is comes from only very small ideological groups and the Africans who oppose it for largely cultural reasons. He might as well have just said, for the Africans 
who come from a culture that still thinks homosexuality is yucky and is still kind of backward in that regard. And so we have to cut them some slack. He didn't. I don't mean to put words into his mouth, but in my opinion, there was a certain condescension in saying the reason why the Africans oppose this is simply cultural. But anyway, what are your what are your what are your comments on those remarks from Pope Francis? Well, I, I, I do feel qualified to, to comment because I, I shared his views at one point. And so one of the things I've tried to do is to ask myself what the transition from the, 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 the Pope Francis mindset back to an orthodox mindset consists of, because if I can explain it, I might be able to offer some help. To you could back general. engineer it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that back engineer. Exactly right. So effectively, the, the two worlds that, that one inhabits that represent either view, the, the, the world of Pope Francis is essentially a therapeutic world. It's dominated by therapeutic criteria for, of, of human well-being. And so it deals in the currency of inclusion, uh, self-acceptance, um, healing, uh, social reconfiguration from... Um, uh, to, to, to enable uh, uh, phobias no longer to impact on people badly. It, 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 almost all the language and the criteria are, are of a psychotherapeutic kind. What it misses entirely is the notion of holiness. How do you explain what holiness is to somebody who has no, no, no sense of it? Um, for, for most of my life, I've, I've been kept, I think, tethered at least to the traditions of the church, by by a great sense of the power of Isaiah chapter six, which as a child uh, touched me very deeply with Isaiah having a vision of the Lord high and risen up, enthroned in the temple. And then the reaction being, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Yeah. Well, in a people of unclean lips. And Okay, you're frozen up again. So hopefully uh, you'll be back soon here. Um, Maybe it doesn't matter which, but it's an education in the gap between us and the Godhead, because Isaiah is certainly no less holy than we than we are, and but he stands for us, even at us at our best. And so, in the way you know, part of saying your prayers and part of being a Christian is is holding together things that might look contradictory or, or at best paradoxical, but but is that you know the justice of God and the mercy of God, that the holiness of God and the forgiveness of God. These are these stretch uh, the categories of our mind and our imagination uh, way out of the normal comfort zones of normal humanity. And part of being a Christian is to be uh, is to allow the Holy Spirit to reconfigure the categories of our imagination and of our our sort of psychogeographical internal landscape. And what this does, I think, is to is to allow us to hold in both therapeutic categories, but also the categories of sanctity. The trouble is, it's quite an exercise. It's quite demanding. And it's much easier either to become only spiritual and to leave aside the insights of, of the woundedness of the human condition, which begins to take you towards Pharisaism, perhaps, or over 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 generous and and over sort of anthropologically flat, um, which means that you fail to represent what it is to be the child of a holy God whom the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to, to change. I mean, one of the ways we understand suffering 
is that suffering, as, as C.S. Lewis explains, you know, God God whispers to our comforts, but but suffering is his megaphone. Suffer, suffering is necessary partly because the the journey towards holiness is so difficult and and so unwelcome to us that it's almost only suffering that puts us in a place where we're even beginning to to, to allow our worldview of ourselves and God to be reconfigured. This is not an easy process. So there are people who take the, the, the easy road on either side. But in order to understand the orthodox view of, of, of disordered sexuality, you have to have some sense of holiness and how disorder, how, how willful disorder is offensive to God and cannot be brought into his presence without the precondition of at least a willingness for repentance. And the difficulty with the whole defense, therapeutic defensiveness that's represented by Cardinal Fernandez and Pope Francis is that issue of repentance is wholly missing. It's not just missing a bit. It's not there at all. Right. There, is just, there is no sense whatsoever that God is offended by the way in which our appetites and our bodies and our actions. Now, I know God is offended by my political attitudes, my political actions. I, I know that God is offended by the way in which I hold on to my bank balance and my possessions. I know that God, my life is an offence to God in all kinds of ways. And for that, I'm deeply sorry. And insofar as I can, I, I, I come using sometimes Cranmer's most wonderful poetic words. I, I, I come in a spirit of penance and ask him to help me cooperate with him. That, that seems to me to be, if you like, the precondition of it, of Christian integrity. Um, it's wholly missing in this language, in yeah. this, this debate yeah. about homosexuality, and that 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 complete absence makes me feel that um, a, a bit like a hard drive where part of it's corrupt and no information is stored. This essential theological aspect of the Godhead appears to be written out of the hard disk of the Pope and Fernandez, Father James Martin, and all those who operate only from and exclusively from a psychotherapeutic model of anthropology. And that, I think, is a problem. I, I think it's a problem, too. And in fact, to, to underscore what you're saying, when you read Fiducius Supplicans, uh, there's a part in there where Fernandez, Cardinal Fernandez, says that these blessings should be administered uh, without any kind of antecedent moral interrogation. Now, there's a bit of a straw man caricature going on there because very, very few priests. But when people walk up and say, can you bless me? are going to say, now, wait a minute. We have to sit down first and have this extent, fill out this form. No, but there's also in this in this not just a straw man caricature and saying no moral interrogation. I think what Cardinal Fernandez is trying to communicate is that these blessings are to given are to be given without any sense of moral adjudication at all. That, that, let, that there's let, let no sense of repentance right. that is expected here. Nothing. Let me, sh let me show how ridiculous I think that is. I imagine I'm a pedophile uh, and, uh, and I turn up to a priest with, with a prepubescent boy that I'm holding by the hand. Now, all you see is an adult and a boy. But let's say I go up to a priest and, and say, we're in a relationship and we're asking for your blessing. Are you really saying that, that, that the priest is excused from any questions about the gap between what I've presented visually and what I've asked him to do? Of course not. What a horrible thought. But if that's true in those circumstances, why is it any less true 
if a homosexual couple present themselves as a couple, uh, this this notion that they can be they can ask for a blessing as individuals when they present it as a couple is is an is it's it's nonsensical. It's untrue. It's a piece of it's it's a piece of illu therapeutic illusion. It's, and, and that I think is why people are so cross with fiducia supplicans because a trick is being played on us that invites our compassion on wholly illegitimate grounds. They are illusory. And yeah. what yeah. you see is not WYSIWYG. What you see is not what you get. And that's why, that's why people, and you don't have to be an African <laughs> to be cross about that. You can be yeah. a white man from Northern Europe and be cross about the illusion. And, and it is a form of, see, the Anglicans did this too. They, they also, there was a, there was an archbishop who said, uh, actually it was an American archbishop. I think it was Spong, Jack Spong, who said, yeah, the actually, yeah. you know, the Africans would behave like this towards homosexuality because, well, they're Africans. And what he meant by that was, I'm a racist who thinks that African culture is more primitive and they've got to catch up with us. Now, oh, actually, I remember I remember when John Shelby Spong <laughs> said that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. OK, well, the Pope is just he's just he's just channeling Spong. He's no less racist than Spong was. Well, that's that's a you know, that's a pretty terrible thing. Well, that's like when Edward Penton, uh, right before the, the Synod on the Family, recorded an interview with Cardinal Casper and pointed out to Cardinal Casper that the Africans were not going to have any, they wouldn't have anything to do with any discussion of the legitimizing of LGBTQ families or whatever. And Cardinal Casper was recorded as saying, well, the Africans should not tell us so much what to do. And in so many words, you you see this mentality coming out of leading prelates in the church in, in Rome that you know, with regard to fiducia, it's 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 a very not so subtle, not so latent racism. It's a, <laughs> it is. African culture is just wrong about this, is benighted. They're still stuck in their primitive, shamanistic, stupid ways. And they're just one generation of Catholics into the church. So don't tell us what to do until you go through a proper Germanic enlightenment. Uh, that's clearly what's what's being communicated here. And, and I find it absolutely repulsive. I also think that it's wrong to say that the opposition comes simply from small ideological groups in in, in the non-Africa. Yeah, there's some ideological groups, but the, 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 the opposition has been rather widespread. I mean, you know, like the Dutch bishops, for example, just came out, I think, with a statement against it as well. But anyway, uh, do you have any last thoughts on, on fiducia? Uh, well, just just that I'm I'm nearly 70 and I've grown up in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, I I don't remember when I last met a homophobic person. I don't remember when I met right. an ideologue of the kind the Pope is talking about. You know, we the cultural pressure uh, to to uh, to accept and treat us normal, rightly or wrongly, it's been uniformly effective. I you know, I'm sure I'm not saying there aren't any homophobes out there. There are all kinds of phobes. We've all all of us got weird parts of our personality. But but in, but yeah. but being able to put this down to ideological uh, constraint, I think, is a is a just a very serious error of diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, and and it's part that there is within this papacy there's this this tendency to pit doctrine against mercy truth against compassion right. and so it's it's almost as if you are by definition homophobic if you emphasize doctrine on these matters rather than the therapeutic sense of their brokenness yeah. and all that kind of thing that you were talking about before yeah 
So they've really extended the use of the word homophobic to to slide over to include just about anybody that's even remotely Catholic on the issue. And then, oh, that's that's ideological. That's ideological. And so that that's that's definitely, I, I, I think, uh, deeply, deeply problematic and how they how they approach the issue. So anyway, yeah, you and I are in the same sort of wave, wavelength from there. So. Uh, OK, we, we've been oh, we've been going on for for a little over an hour now, so we should probably wrap this up uh, a little bit. But I did want to um, one last thing. I, I, I keep floating in my brain. I have little notes in front of me, emails that people I got scores and scores and scores of emails from people on this. They love this interview. They would like to know one last thing from you, which is when you say that the Pope has a sort of Jungian mentality, could you possibly, as we as we end the conversation here today, elaborate just a little bit more on what you mean by that? Yes. Well, what are you reminding me to to get lost and to give you a, a long and tedious lecture about Carl Gustav Jung's mindset? Um, but effectively, I mean, Jung was the most interesting person, and and one of the reasons why I became a Jungian was he provided a very useful antidote to Freud. So let, let me start by saying that. Freud was very problematic yeah. because uh, he did two things. He, he he essentially preached a form of rational scientism by which anything that couldn't be measured wasn't true. And he saw religion as being one of the primary forms of neurosis, which refused empirical examination and was. Uh, and then he made some very dreadful connections between uh, religion and madness, which were which were wholly spurious and should never have been accepted. A lot of a lot of Freud's experiments and conclusions were fatuous, and some of them were faked. Um, but the problem was he influenced a whole generation. So the generation I grew up in was profoundly Freudian in terms of the way it rejected religion as a neurosis uh, and accepted the notion that sexuality was at the heart of the human quest for for, for sanity and for balance. When Jung, so, but so Jung was um, a, a partly a follower of Freud. Uh, and, and Jung did something enormously important. He, in the context of this Freudian uh, butch, uh, he said that actually so far from being a neurosis, religion was the means by which, the unique means by which the fissures in human consciousness and unconsciousness, and even within unconsciousness itself, could be healed. And that what religion did was to contain a, a level of, uh, of, of sophisticated symbolism and it was the unconsciousness of sophisticated symbolism that allowed if you like the blockages between the unconscious and conscious elements of human personality to to reconnect well this was a this 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 um repudiated the the freudian analysis and what yeah. it allowed us to do was to say we are naturally religious creatures and we must take it seriously. And so what does it look like when you take religion seriously? Well, then Jung helped us with that too. I should say that Jung was a Gnostic heretic uh, and he takes you places you don't want to end up. But but the process is fascinating. And what he did was to draw a map of psychological integration. That's really interesting. And, and you can, uh, I mean, it really is absolutely fascinating. And if only it was true and worked. But what he but but one of the consequences, or rather, if you like, the way the map looked was that it involved it involved polarities, which required reconciling and integrating. So one of the things he's very famous for is the polarity between male and female. So these polarities are extroversion and intuition, uh, male and female, uh, good and evil, and um, order and spontaneity in terms of what, what you prefer. And, and Jung's thesis on each of these is that the further you exist at the end of one one of these poles, 
the more you have to integrate the other. And if you can't, then it turns into a kind of shadow thing that bounces back and bites you. And so the whole point of therapy and the whole point of Jungian uh, um, the worldview was to allow this integration to take place. Now, you know, this may or may not be useful or true. However, it's got one very, very serious flaw. And the serious flaw is that one of these poles is good and evil. And so suddenly evil becomes, if you like, an, a, 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 the shadow of good. So what it needs to do is to be welcomed, stroked, included, healed, recognized, loved, and welcomed back into the house, and then, and then, then it becomes good. But this is not what the New Testament teaches us. The New Testament teaches us that that uh, that good and evil are forms. I'm going to talk loosely philosophically for the moment, but forms of absolute opposites. Of course, evil is not an absolute, but let us for the moment. Us. and that actually they are they are antithetic they are wholly antithetical to each other and the only way that evil can approach good is by is by repentance and by change by giving up rebellion form of inversion now this is absolutely the opposite of what jung does so the problem with jung is that he he abolishes the distinction between good and evil well how can you have any christianity where the, where the distinction between good and evil is abolished. But for, for whom and for what is Jesus dying on the cross? The whole notion of sanctity goes down the tubes. Now we go back to our earlier conversation. Excuse me, I'm, 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 I'm talking a bit fast, but I mean, there's a lot to get in. Uh, one uh, of, you can, you if, can slow down. That's fine. We got time. If, if, the, uh, if one of the consequences of Jungian ideology is to rub out the notion of sanctity and good and evil, that that begins to explain by why Pope Francis and Cardinal Fernandez and Dr. Ashenden, as he used to be, uh, were so content to live within a psychotherapeutic world of value because the notion of good and evil upon which holiness is predicated are, are abolished as primitive, mistaken, uh, category errors, whatever you like. And, and so it, it, it's precisely this chasm that opens up between between the committed Jungian and the committed Christian, that then becomes impossible to bridge. And as catechesis has not taken place, as people have not read their Bibles, as, uh, if, if you like, as, as we have lost some of the power of the Old Testament, and one of the things the First Covenant does is to help educate us in that. If The, the First Covenant is an experiment, is a collective experiment in the discovery of holiness. That's what the first covenant is all about, extending even to the way you eat and cook your food. And it's it's absolutely predicated on making distinctions and discernment. Um, it is everything that the DEI culture hates. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's no it's no surprise that DEI culture is totally antithetical to this this ex, this experimental journey into holiness that the first covenant represents and that the second covenant builds upon so we have two wholly different worldviews one of which takes us deeper into the world of purity and distortion of good and evil and one of which abolishes it and it's this it's, it's this distinction between the abolition of and the the understanding of these two worlds that marks the fissure that runs right down the civil war in the church and i think only I don't mean to be pretentious, but perhaps only by understanding the enormous philosophical and spiritual damage that this occultist Jung, because he was an occultist. Yeah. Yes, he was. And, through, and... through the whole of society, uh, but above all of the church, only by understanding that, I think, 
do we stand any chance of liberating ourselves from the homophobic slurs that the therapeutic lobby throw at us? Because oh, it's yes. not about it's not about homophobia; it's about holiness. Uh, and I think what we have to say to them is, you've simply lost sight of what it is to be holy, and, and, boy, and you boy, need yeah. us to remind you. You you've really you're you're singing my song here because my, the theme of so much of my writing from my book with Ignatius Press, the book I'm writing for Word on Fire right now on the universal call to holiness. This, so, so, many, so much of my themes revolve around this very concept of sanctity uh, as in a Christian registers grounded in a Christological anthropology. Hence the name of my blog, Gaudimus Best 22. 22 is a section <laughs> of just, you know, it's only in the light of, you know, the incarnation of God in Christ that the mystery of man makes any sense. And it does remind me as well, I have a very dear friend taught with me at DeSales University, a psychologist, uh, fallen away Catholic, not a believer at all, Dr. Richard Knoll, N-O-L-L, who wrote a famous book on Jung, The Jung Cult, in which he kind of mm -hmm. conned the Jung family into letting him into the Jung archives, and they were very angry at him when the, his book came out, in which he essentially he, he understands that Jung, like you said, is basically a Gnostic, and for that, it's for that reason, he says, that Jung's stuff just doesn't work. And his assessment of Jung is far more negative than yours. He views Jung as a kind of charlatan and a showman. And oh, but well, hang on, hang on. I, you didn't get my full assessment. You just you just got my introductory remarks. Okay, yeah, well, then maybe you could build on. Maybe you. If, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Knoll's book or not. Yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. And so I maybe. Agree with it. Okay, good. Yeah. No, but, but 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 perhaps I can say, if 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 listeners sense that I am sort of emotionally committed to the. Uh, analysis that I've offered and wonder whether that level of emotional commitment is proportionate to my intellectual uh, analysis. The answer is because I absolutely accept the uh, the, the findings of Noel. Um, and as time has gone by, I've become more and more alarmed at the implications of this Gnostic occultist setting setting a map that has become universal in our culture. I mean, I remember when it happened. I was a I was a professor of the psychology of religion for 23 years. And uh, it was about the year, it was about the millennium when I said to myself, wow, I can feel the mental map of my society shifting as we speak from Freud to Jung. It was yeah. an extraordinary, and I thought, I wonder what this is going to do. This is, and, and initially I was very excited because I thought I was going to be able to stand on an event platform and say i told you so to all my to all my sort of you know atheist scientist colleagues who gave me yeah. such a hard time because they believed in freud i had no idea that i was on a on, on a profoundly slippery slope from an occultist charlatan <laughs> who who writes the most who draws the most charming yes. and fascinating maps no you did you did make that quite clear and so my apologies for miscarriage you made it very clear in what you said uh i was simply reacting somewhat when i when you were speaking to the fact that when you began you said well at least jung got us away from the mistakes of freud and yeah. i think that my dear friend richard Knoll, and this is what prompted the the idea that maybe there were some slight differences between you and he. I think Noel would be more Freudian than Jungian. And I think Noel is far more agnostic, uh, non-believer. I'm not, in other words, I don't think he would have viewed the movement away from Freud's analysis of religion to Jung's more positive appraisal as necessarily a good, a good thing at all. No, I was mistaken. I was mistaken. 
<laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. not that you approve of Freud at all. And you made that clear. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, yeah, Richard's a good friend of mine. I doubt he's listening to this, but maybe I'll send it to him so he can he can have he can have a shot at it anyway. Well, do you have any last words? Thank you so much for coming on today. No, you're very kind. I'm afraid I've I've, I've showered you with words and probably. <laughs> oh, no. There's a, there's I love a wonderful it. verse in, in Midsummer Night's Dream. Was it Midsummer Night's Dream? Enough, no more. It is not so sweet as it was before. But there comes <laughs> a point when, when less is more. So we, perhaps we should stop there. <laughs> thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you very much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, for everyone who has asked me, begging me to have Dr. Ashington on again, I hope you are now uh, well pleased and, and happy with this interview. And thank you, uh, Gavin, for coming on again. Thank you very much. No, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for the discussion. Very grateful.